So I thought, okay, if someone else could do this, open a chain of organic supermarkets, there's no reason I can't. So I did. And I got experience. I learned about organic. I realized I loved it. I have the mind for retail because I am a detail person. So it all worked. And then I was turning 30 and I thought, now's my moment. From the pages of a wine magazine to the UK's largest certified organic haven of gorgeous produce, Mississippi-born Renee Elliott moved to the UK in 1986, the same year I was born. Nine years later, Renee launched Planet Organic, having followed her heart and quit her job to seek a job in a health food store after encountering the organic supermarket Bread and Circus on a visit to the US. Planet Organic became the first store certified by the Soil Association and now has five outlets. Is that still true? No, seven. Seven. <laughs> Super. I was just going to say you have done your research. Almost. But... <laughs> Almost. I did old research. <laughs> so seven outlets. Inspired by the tutelage of Craig Sams, founder of Whole Earth Foods and Green and Blacks, Renee absorbed a wealth of knowledge on food, nutrition and everything organic. Walking into Planet Organic is like walking into the Willy Wonka chocolate factory, but for everything healthy and delicious. Overflowing fruit and vegetables, organic bread from artisan London bakeries, sustainable fish from British water, gluten-free, dairy-free, raw food and healthy options. Limitless goodness. Speaking of limitless, Renee's ventures don't stop there. Beluga Bean, a life skills and business skills academy for women that is supported by the same green thinking that takes deeper care of women's well-being, is another fantastic enterprise that is inspirational and genius in even strokes. Eat well and live better by choosing a wide variety of great ingredients and enjoying them because the stress may kill you before eating badly does. If you've heard that quote before, you'll have heard it from Renee Elliott, the mother of three and married to Brian. So let's hear it for the guardian of organic. Welcome to the show, Renee. Thank you. So, Renee, to break the ice, are you ready for a quick fire round? Yeah. Good. England or America? Oh, I think I'm hanging in the middle, honey. Oh, so you're just in the pond in the middle. I don't know. Like I go boat. back and forth. I'm I'm here now because my platform, my professional platform is here. My kids are in school here. But I do dream and yearn to move back sometimes. Oh, really? Okay. And you'd move back to Mississippi? No, I grew up outside of Boston. And that's where my family are in Massachusetts. But it's freezing in the winter. So I don't think I could do that again at this stage of my life. Yeah. So I dream of warmer parts of America. Yeah, you dream of warmer places like London, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, with, without the rain. <laughs> um, Brussels sprouts or porridge? Ooh, I love them both. You can't do this to me. I can't. I have to choose every... have to make decisions. Oh, God. Can I say porridge for breakfast, Brussels sprouts, any other time of the day? Sure, if, if you must. <laughs> yeah, are you offended that the uh, Brussels sprout parade is going to come after you? And, yeah, no, yes. I love them. I absolutely adore them. Okay, cookery classes or badminton? Cookery classes. So you did do the research, though, just in case. <laughs> uh, address or jeans? Jeans. Gardener's World or food and wine? Ooh, food and wine. Person you wish you could meet the most? So someone that you really want to meet that you uh, haven't? Oh, I wanted to meet Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Okay, yeah. As we'll probably get into, not that much of a surprise. Yeah. And finally, an entrepreneur, wife or mother, if you had to pick one? Jeez. Certainly not an entrepreneur. Motherhood is terrifying and valuable, so that's kind of a tricky one. <laughs> I love being married. <laughs> okay, we're going to just say... 
Wife. Wife? Yeah. <laughs> My we kids will die. It. Well, you know, <laughs> you're just going to have to share it with your husband and not your kids. Okay, so Mississippi is a long way from the UK, obviously, and a place that's remembered in US history for tensions as well as its mud pie. Tell me about your mother and how important food was growing up. So, well, I was born in Mississippi and we moved around a lot. My mom's from New Orleans, so that was kind of the stable part of our food history. She came from a long line of cooks and bakers, and those recipes that she made for us when we were growing up were all very traditional New Orleans food. So I grew up eating lots of gumbos and fish and seafood combinations, which is very common in uh, Creole cooking. I mean, it was pretty normal then anyway, but she cooked from scratch. She baked. She was an incredible baker as well. And she didn't buy many ready-made foods. You know, she'd we grew tomatoes and she would make her own pasta sauce. So she was incredibly important in the food tradition. Having said that, my dad, who was from Rhode Island, he was first-generation Lithuanian in America, Lithuanian-American. He made us four children plant and weed and pick and prune about a 30-foot square vegetable garden. So we were always, you know, the sort of growing and planting was there, not as farmers like some people are lucky enough to experience, but really being close to growing and planting and taking care of that. So the food was always really important. And for me, food was always a celebration. You know, we were never kind of punished at mealtime. I used to hear stories of kids saying, you know, they'd be sent from the table or for some reason. And for us, food was always abundant. And for celebrations like birthdays, successes, graduations, you know, plus the usual Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas, Fourth of July, those great celebrations with lots of people. So other family coming, friends. I could always ask a girlfriend around after school for dinner. There was always enough. And my mom, she had love and food completely woven together. Mm. And you didn't start off in food, though. You started off in wine. So how did that happen? Yes, that's because that I had... No, it's because I had absolutely no idea ever what I wanted to be or do. That, but you enjoyed wine? Well, I didn't then. I mean, it, the reason I went into wine was I when I came to England, I needed a job. And I could write because I was an English major. And I was an English major because I had no idea what I wanted to do. Although I did... I'm an English major because I have no idea what I wanted to do. So I can relate. But you can do anything. Yeah. I was the guy who grew up in England and took English. And then everyone's like, is that Why a thing? Are you? I'm yeah. like, no, I just don't know what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. My dad kept saying, what are you going to do with an English major? And I said, I have no idea. But can't you do anything? And I majored in communications. And I thought, well, that's always handy. So I got here and I didn't... I came here to date... Brian, who I'd met on a night bus the year before. Well, in England you'd met? Yeah, on Lower Regent Street. Oh, wow. So we shared a night bus from, it was the N15 from Lower Regent Street to Barking. And I came back, I went back and finished my university degree, came back to date him for two years. And I thought, great, I don't have to figure out what I want to do. So I got here and thought, I need a job. I applied for magazines and I was offered Practical Caravan, Computer Weekly, or Wine and Spirit. Which would you choose? Well, I mean, probably Computer Weekly. But yeah, hey. but if you were anyone other than <laughs> a techie, you, yeah, wine and you, spirit. I choose wine and spirit, for sure. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you came back to England to date Brian for two years. Uh, I know women are very strategic and have lots of plans, but that's very specific. Do you mean in hindsight? No, no. I very specifically said to my family, I'm going to live, I'm going to move to England for two years. It won't affect my career because then it was, you know, you graduate. It wasn't all this gap year stuff. You mm. graduated, you got a job. Yep. So I said, I'll go for two years. I'll get some work experience. I'll figure out really what I want to do. I'll come back to Boston and get a job. 
See, and then you spent a lot of time in Tuscany, correct? Which is a great Not place. there, that was much later. Ah, okay. Well, take us actually on a bit of a journey. Don't let okay. me interrupt you. You've met Brian on a night bus, in fact, and you've come back to England for two years and you've started working at magazine, as you said. After that two-year period, what happened? Well, the pivotal thing, because, you know, you do enough interviews and people say, why did you do this or how did you choose this? Well, when I look back, it was actually on my first day at work in England. I turned up at the magazine. This was pivotal in terms of my deciding to start my own company. And I sat down and, you know, Americans are really enthusiastic of whatever else you think of us. We're just, you know, the world's our oyster. And it was my first day at work. I was really excited. I was 21 years old. And it was an open plan office. So I sat down with all these guys And the guy next to me said, it was Monday morning, you know, it was, I think it was September 1st, 1986. And the guy next to me said, I can't wait till Friday. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, oh my God, I am such an emotional person and passionate. By emotion, I mean passionate. I'll die in five years if I'm not doing something I love. So I decided on that day I had to love what I do. And then very shortly after that, I mean, none of us really like being told what to do, but I really can't stand it. And, you know, I was happy to work and I learned a lot, but I thought I really don't like being told what to do. I should probably have my own company. <laughs> and so how did you transition there? I mean, that's well, not, I mean, I know time. that Americans actually also the great thing about Americans is, you know, self-belief. Yeah. And that's why actually there are so many brilliant entrepreneurs from America probably outperform every other country because there's that inherent cultural self-belief. But you're still how old at this point? I was 21. Yeah, so 21, you're working in a company with a bunch of miserable Brits, which I think is something that most people can probably identify with. What gave you the confidence to just go up and start? Well, it took time because, again, I had no idea of what to do or in what area to work. I had studied nutrition at university as well. That was always an interest with the whole food thing. And I had two sisters who were kind of medical, so the whole medical conversation had been going on. But it also went back to when I was 19, which was a really interesting year for me at uni. I realized after many things converging that doing what most people do doesn't suit me, that I'm always looking for better and better means different. I'm not interested in traveling the well-trodden path. I'm, I'm looking for more and... So, and that came about with a book I read about the meat industry in America, which was shocking and horrifying. And I became a vegetarian because I was so freaked out. And then I started to really look at what most people do and how most people think and live and and across all areas, you know, politics, business. And I thought, yeah, it's not great. Could be better. So I was on this path of exploration that led to interest in spirituality as well. I also read Siddhartha by Herman Hesse at university as required reading, and I thought, wow, this is cool. And just that idea of other realms, other possibilities that day-to-day people don't necessarily think of. So I worked in the wine trade, which was great, and I learned a lot. I thought if I'm going to develop a hobby, wine, it's a great thing to know about. It's a great, you know, and it was fun, and it became something my dad and I really enjoyed doing together as well. And then that moved on, and I went into wine sales and on and on and on. And then I did a personal development weekend in 1990, and that really opened my eyes, and it ticked a lot of boxes for me of questions I'd been asking, like, you know, why do we, because I'd been in my relationship now with the bus guy, Brian, for the bus guy. five years. <laughs> you know, and we had we were starting to argue about the same stuff. And I thought, wow, this is what, you know, my parents have a good marriage, but this is what they do. And I hate it. And I don't want to do that. I want to do this better and differently. 
So we did this weekend. And at the end of the weekend, we walked out with a toolbox of tricks and techniques to use to stop, to catch patterns, to recognize patterns, change behavior, and live differently. And for me, that was like the golden ticket. So I was very interested in, again, this was the ability to live better, live differently, be very conscious in the way you live and the way you are in relationships and work and everything. And then we had an opportunity to do that. The couple who ran that weekend were running a six-month course in Connecticut, and they said it was the last one. So we, Brian and I quit our jobs. we just got married. So we got married in the fall of 1990 and then went to do this program. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Was it, as it turns out, the last one, or were they just typical incredible It was the American second to last salesman? one. No, it nearly was, and they were under so much pressure from people who couldn't do the last one. Okay. They did one after that, and then that was it. Well, while, we, while I was on that, I thought, okay, I'm not going back into the wine trade. This is my break. This is my chance. Now I'll go back and do the work I really want. And I really saw your my 20s, and I really see 20s, as the time of getting to know yourself. You get to know who you are what drives you, what motivates you. Some people know that younger, but if you haven't figured it out by then, your 20s are a real time of self-exploration. Were you, may I ask, were you drinking at this point? As in, uh, you were working in the wine industry? Was it a very heavily, Well, that was I part, mean, in Britain as yeah, well? That's part of the reason I knew I couldn't do that forever because mm-hmm. I thought I'm in a trade that has, you know, alcoholics around it and it's selling something that ultimately is poison, you know, really. And do you drink now? Yes. Moderation. Yes, very much. And my husband doesn't drink. So I thought, okay, I took six six months off, 
we we agreed we'd just gotten married, so we thought we'll take the time off, we'll do the program because it wasn't every day; it was weekends and other bits and pieces. And I started shopping in this fantastic health food store in Connecticut, and it was big, and they had treatment rooms with all kinds of things I'd never heard of then because my parents weren't hippie parents. They were, you know, good cooking, but not alternative in that way. So they, this, I remember Gestalt and Reiki and... They weren't hippie, but you did those things. No, these these were the treatment rooms in oh, this health okay. food store. And I thought, wow, I don't even know what this stuff is. And they had a cafe. And what really appealed to me was its food, which is the basic fuel for our bodies. I get that very basic, you know fuel thing. The people who worked there and shopped there were looking for better and different, which really, as I've said, really appeals to me. And I'd never seen anything like it because it was a big health. You know, in England, we had health food stores then, but they were small. Mm. So I thought, ooh, I could do this. So we finished the six-month program, which was brilliant, changed our lives. And it also helped give me the belief that I could do what I wanted to do, but more about that in a second. And my sister said, look, if you're thinking of opening a chain of organic supermarkets, you've got to see Bread and Circus in Boston, which was the first organic supermarket chain in Boston. It's now, it has been bought by Whole Foods. But I went to see it and it was just miraculous because at that time, and in some ways still today, supermarkets in America are much more basic than here. We don't have the Waitroses and the Sainsbury's, the the sort of social class scale of supermarkets. They're all pretty awful. But this organic supermarket was absolutely stunning. Beautiful, organic plants, music, really intelligent, helpful, knowledgeable team. So I thought, oh my gosh, I've never seen anything like it. So I was super excited. And I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So I came back to England. And I was scared. You know, you said, how did I have the confidence? I was very shy as a kid. I've had to force myself to be out in the world. Force yourself to be more American. Yeah, yes, to be the ugly American. (laughs) But my dad always said, uh, sometimes I talk about my dad, and there are a few things he said that were really key for me, because in those days, you didn't have this soft and squidgy relationship with your dad. They were much more distant. You know, I was afraid of my father, which was normal then. And he was, you know, very few words. And I didn't even know that he knew me. I realized as I got older that he did. But when he said things like, you can do what anyone else can do, I believed him. I was also very naive and very innocent growing up. So I was like, oh, really? But, you know, I didn't go to a great university, and I'm not the brightest bulb in the box. I don't have the highest IQ. And he said, it doesn't matter. If you want something really badly and you work really hard, you'll get it. And I guess in your spiritual and personal development, that that sits completely aligned with that. So I thought, okay, if... And I would tell myself, if someone else could do this, open a chain of organic supermarkets, there's no reason I can't. So I did. Okay, so you've had your uh, dad tell you you can do anything you want to do. You've grown up in America. You've seen this... Small uh, town girl. Small town girl. You've seen this opportunity in the market, which doesn't really exist in the UK at that point. All of the stars are aligning. And even more importantly, you've gone on this personal development course, which has given you that confidence to create the future that you want for yourself. Yes. And you get to know yourself through your 20s. I don't know an awful lot about astrology. I know a bit. I know more about Eastern astrology than Western. But I know that at 28 years old, it's called your Saturn return. And it's something like when Saturn comes back into your natal chart. And it's when many people figure out what they want to do. They figure out their purpose. And the number of times I've sat across the table having a cup of coffee with someone who wants, who might be interested in me mentoring them. And I say, how old are you? Because they're leaving the city or they don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Or 
any of those traditional professions and they say, I can't do this anymore. I've got to follow my dream and my heart. And I say, I could now I just want to say, are you 28? Because the number of times they say, I'm 28. And I think, yeah, it's when you realize what you want, you know who you are and you're ready to go out and get it. So I came, so it was 28. I thought this is, I had my idea, perfect idea. And I went and worked in a health food store for a couple of years to get experience and to make sure, because I'm a risk taker, but I'm not crazy risk taker. And I got experience. I learned about organic. I realized I loved it. I have the mind for retail because I am a detail person. So it all worked. And then I was turning 30 and I thought, now's my moment. So I actually opened Planet when I was 30. And I... Where was your first store? Westbourne Grove. Lovely. Yes. And how did you get the funds to start that up? What was the situation with funding at the time? Just well, paint a picture for us. How does one start yeah, a Planet Organic? People tell me it's really hard to raise funds now, and I'm sure it is. And there's lots of competition. But there's also a lot of money out there and a lot of people willing to invest, particularly in socially innovative entrepreneurs on the one hand and in tech on the other hand, because it can be such a money spinner. But we found it impossible. I had a business partner at the time, and nobody knew what we were talking about. They couldn't visualize, even though we had photos from the States and we had a really great business plan that we wrote. People didn't see the beginnings of the need for organic food or health food in a growing capacity in terms of transforming the health of England. And my mission was certainly to promote health in the community. And I said other things like, you know, I'll change, I want to change food retailing in the UK. And and I just, I realized that if I got angry about something, then I wasn't going to complain about it. I was going to do something about it. And I would get really angry about what people ate, what they shopped, what the supermarkets would sell, because it's wrong. You know, it's wrong. And I have I have complete integrity. So Planet was founded in integrity. So I thought, oh, it just makes me really angry. We're going to do things differently. But the investors, the potential investors we were talking to were like, yeah, not so much. Health food stores, you know, little shops, dusty, hippie, very niche don't see that going mainstream. So in the end, other than my best girlfriend, Julia, who said, I want to invest in you. And I said, please don't, <laughs> because it's really high risk. We were really struggling. So our investors ended up being, other than Julia and an organic farmer, who um, my partner and I met at an organic, at the Soul Association Organic Conference, Ray, who's become a great friend. The investors were all my partner's father's friends and family friends, because there was a connection there. That's not so uncommon. Yeah, it was It was really hard going. We raised half a million because it cost half a million to open a store. And take us through that first year. What was that like? <laughs> it was crazy. Oh, yeah, it, was story. it was 95. 95, okay. So we opened in November 95. And the first couple of months were really awful. And when I opened Planet, I knew how to run, a, I knew how to manage a store. I did not know how to run a business. <laughs> Very different. So there was a lot of fast learning going on. And I can, I'm can i good at math. I can do all of that. But it wasn't where my heart was. I wanted to do the other stuff. But you have to do everything, as every entrepreneur knows, when you start out. And even if you're not doing it, you need to be all over it so that you know everything that's going on in your business, particularly at the beginning. And we ran out of cash, which is the killer. You know, most businesses fail because they run out of cash. I didn't have money to pay the team. In the first month, because I missed that bit when I did the business startup planning <laughs> course, I did. Um, and Despite the, being good at maths, yes, that happens to the best and of the us. Contra- well, I thought money would be coming in. Well, we weren't really selling much, so we didn't have the money. And the 
one of the big contractors' bills, the final contractor bill, came in. And we had to pay our suppliers because, of course, we'd ordered early in order to get all the stock on the shelves. And the normal credit wasn't enough. So in the end, we went begging in the trade and said, will you please extend our credit, which they did. So we paid the team. The architect took shares in the company because we couldn't pay him. He was a friend of my husband's. And I think we sort of pushed the contractor for a bit. But what happened for us is we decided to hire a PR company because I didn't want to pay for advertising, but we had a lot to say and a really great story to tell and a lot of consciousness raising about food and nutrition and farming that we thought if we could get editorial, that would be great. So the PR company started in January. And then in February, it was the first big BSE scare in England. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. How old were you? Like nine? Oh, I was nine? in school. Yeah, I was, a, I think, eight. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that was huge and started people, you know, got frightened about eating meat. And we had a full-service meat counter at Westbourne Grove, Organic, Soil Association, British, beef. We took in whole carcass and butchered down to sausages. We had everything, mm. three scary butchers. And you were vegetarian at this point? I was. So how did that feel yeah. for you? Because you mentioned you've got integrity. How do you feel? That's, I guess, trying to weigh your personal beliefs against a business, a market demand, and understanding that actually if things are organic, then that is most of the argument one on the integrity yes. side. But I mean, you know, there's the whole question on how you feel emotionally about that stuff. Yes, it is. Even your... describing it, as you just described it, you described the real process right down to a carcass. And as a vegetarian, that's a horrific Yeah. Oh, well, they'd walk image. in with the carcasses and I was like, yeah. oh, guys, could you come in a back door somewhere? It's just all cover them with netting or something. My belief for Planet was to sell the better version of everything, and that included meat. And I thought, there's no way I'm not going to sell organic meat, which would be inadvertently supporting the conventional meat industry, which I think is appalling. So it was offering a better option. And I believe that not eating meat or being vegetarian or vegan is a very, very personal decision. And that wasn't the mission I was on. I don't try and convince people to not eat meat. I try and convince people to eat better and to choose organic and to always eat better. And that's an upward spiral. Some people get to those questions as they move up the spiral of eating better. Some don't. It doesn't matter. But for me, it's about just better health continuously. So the problem I've always had, and I'm sure you recognize this really, and I used to work right next to a Planet Organic, and that was like our treat, the one in Liverpool Street. Mm. I couldn't afford it. I can't afford, you know, I, mm. I, I couldn't afford organic food because I was paying myself £12,000 a year. So I would eat shit because I needed to eat. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I would eat like whatever, like t- tins of tuna. And, you know, now there's actually a lot more interesting o- options for a lower cost out there. Um, but even five years ago, there really weren't. So you would eat on the smallest budget you could. And that meant you weren't eating organic because you couldn't. And it's really interesting. And what ended up happening throughout the years is I ended up eating organic and then I went vegetarian and now vegan and uh, totally well I say vegan like mostly plant-based is what I say like 90% always in the home basically everywhere in London but it is an upward spiral yes but it's very hard I would argue the organic industry which is how the whole thing is set up unfortunately because of food production it's cost prohibitive on social class you know it's so hard for people on low budgets I mean, it's a social class thing, you know, is, a, is an unfair way of saying it. But your take home, if you have to supply to a family, you're not given the option almost of choosing organic because of the mass production of cheaper meat. Yeah. And we could talk about price for an hour. But when I am confronted with that, my thinking and my answer is health is a spectrum. And there are people 
low down on eating really, really badly. And then there's organic as the pinnacle. And I'm like out here as the food freak. It's a huge gradient in between that. And healthy for these people down here does not mean eating organic. It means not eating crap, not drinking soda, cutting down on sugar, cutting down on refined foods. It means cooking. It means very basic, eating whole grains, eating vegetables. So it's not... I can only be healthy if I eat organic, and organic's too expensive, so, oh, poor me. No, it's grains and beans and vegetables and cooking, and it's a whole spectrum. And this isn't the answer for everyone, this pinnacle of organic, free from, you know, superfoods. It's not that simple. It's a big conversation. I could talk about price of food for for at least an hour. Well, we'll have to do a separate one. <laughs> okay, then, well, let's do right back to your story. Sorry. So, um, so that first year. Okay. okay. So, so then, so our sales jumped. People, ironically, as you say, because I was a vegetarian, came in and started buying meat, and then the people started to shop the rest of the store. And then later that year, and I think it was in the summer, there was a big E. coli scare when Edwina Curry was in office. Do you remember mm, that? Yeah. You were little. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't remember. That's not the most famous thing I remember Edwina Curry for. <laughs> but the E. coli was scare was in there. Yeah. I but... was more interested in the eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was a kid, so I was definitely more interested in the affair. <laughs> and then, and organic sales jumped again. We jumped again. So our first year, we did 1.2 million out of the Westbourne Grove store. Our second year, our sales doubled to 2.4 million. And we were the mecca, though. We pulled in from not only the whole of London, but from far-flung parts of England where people would come shopping. So we did really well. This was 95 we opened, so in our first couple of years, and then heading up towards 1999. And then genetically modified foods tried to come into England. They had people dressed up as Frankenstein marching in those supermarket car parks because the supermarkets were already selling GM ingredients to us without us knowing. They were in some tomato products. And the NGOs picked this up, and the Guild of Food Writers launched a public awareness-raising campaign to let the country know. And what I really loved England then, because I saw how, you know, in the days before Internet and this whole, you know, instant news, in a country so small, you could galvanize people with national media, which in America is just impossible. So suddenly everyone was talking about GM and the antidote for that was organic. And the supermarkets went organic, and I think five or six independents opened across London. Suddenly we had huge competition. But my goal always was to an organic planet, you know, to grow the organic market. And I was never worried about competition, so that was okay. Although our sales plummeted at Westbourne Grove, and we just opened Torrington Place. So a bit of a disaster, but, you know, it's that roller coaster of being an entrepreneur. Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish, whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big HQ. We take care of the whole process from start to finish, and our service is completely free. Check us out on contour.space. So looking back on the journey of opening these stores, etc., how much easier do you find the jump store by store year after year? Do you, Does it get exponentially easier or just new challenges that come up and it gets all harder? It could have gotten easier if we had done the same thing. So, for example, West Brom Grove is very residential. So we knew that formula worked. High basket spend, trolley shopping, customers buying for their families. 
I started with a business partner, and after two years, he decided that we should part and that I should leave. And he's from a well-connected family in England, and I'm a pretty much a nobody from America. So it was a David and Goliath story. They tried to make it very expensive very quickly. They said if I didn't leave, I, they would take me to court. So we were in litigation for 14 months, which was very expensive. And by the summer, I thought, I don't know if I can do this anymore. They kept offering me money for my shares. You know, people were saying, just sell, get out, do this. And I was so confused. And you know, and this this happens... two years in. Yeah, and this happens so often with entrepreneurs where, because we work with a lot of women as well, who get a lot of advice, and there's so many mentors right now, and they say, oh, my God, I don't even know what I want anymore because I can't even hear my own voice. And it got to that point for me that summer. I was really tired. It was very stressful being in the company with him and two other male directors who were clubbing together. And I asked my girlfriend, Julia, I said, look, I need to get out. I just, I don't even know what I want. I need to get out of here and clear my head and look for divine inspiration. So she and I went off to the Lake District for a weekend just so I could hear my own voice and get into my heart. And we walked around. So I think we got there Friday night, knowing we were going to leave Sunday night and drive back. And we're walking and, you know, Saturday and Sunday, nothing. You know, I'm meditating, all this nothing. (laughs) I thought, oh, my God, I'm nearly out of time. I have no clarity. And then we sat by this lake. And I never forget that it's one of those, you know, you have images that are captured in your mind. There was a wind coming off the lake towards us, so there were these little tiny ripples. And I was sitting there, and I thought, I just imagined walking away, taking the money and walking away and giving up, basically. And I thought, I can't do it. I can't do it. If I stay and fight and lose, I'll be bankrupted. I was in way over my head. But I will accept that as destiny because I believe in the unfolding of life. And that's I have to trust that in order to stay sane every day. If I win, great, but I have to give it my best shot, which is another thing my dad used to say to me. He used to say, you know, because I was, I was a good kid. I was a straight-A student. And I remember one time I went to him and said, Dad, I don't think I've done really well on this big exam. And he looked at me and he said, I don't care what you got, which was a huge shock to me. He said, I just want to know that you did your best. He said, don't ever tell me you didn't try your hardest. And that came back to me and I thought, I have to see this through. I have to give it my best shot. Would it be right in assuming that your business partner was in it more for the opportunity and the money and you were in it for the purpose? No, he had the same vision. He had the same dream. I don't know if it was as heartfelt for him because he was drawn to other things. He had very strong desires and emotion to do other things. Like he was very drawn to Africa and wildlife and teaching young kids. And and ultimately, that's what he did. So perhaps. But I think he was in it for the right reasons. But anyway, so I sat there by the lake and thought, okay, I'm going to stay and fight. I have to see it through. And win or lose, I knew then that I could accept whatever happened with grace and dignity and move on. And in the meantime, the business is operational and you guys are... We kept it from everyone. Yeah, you we guys didn't are tell going anyone. to work every day. Yep, sharing an office this size, not speaking, which for me is hell. If you want to torture me, don't communicate with me. Because for me, all relationships... And this is true of, you know, communications major. Yeah. And my this is whether it's my mom, my kids, my husband, someone at work. It's trust and respect underpinned by communication. So you can't do any of that if you're not talking. So that was absolute torture for me. How did that episode end then? So it ended in a 10 day trial in the high courts 
in January 98. And are people in the company asking where the hell you both are? No, because by then he'd pulled people in to be witnesses. He had to give witness statements. And so then they knew there were people who knew by that point. I think by the end of that year, it was becoming known, although we listed it as a number, not by name, because we were trying to protect the company. So it was an 11-day trial in the high courts, and I won. And to win, he had to lose his case against me. I had to win my case against him, and then the judge had to rule in my favor, which he did. Fantastic. So, yes, and that's when I said to my husband, please come work with me. <laughs> oh, so he did? So he did. And we ran Planet together for 10 years. Fantastic. That's so nice. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. So, happy ending. Didn't do my research well enough, it seems. And people... <laughs> what was his role leading up to this? Where was he? he was, was in, his experience? He was in... He's a chartered surveyor, and he'd been an asset manager in commercial property Perfect. for 25 years. Yeah, really experienced. So when, when Brian joined, the first thing he did was separate West Brown Grove, the store, from the head office function in order to prepare it to bolt on another store. So... This is where we come back to opening stores to get easier. So the second store is always a big thing because it's new. But also it was in Fitzrovia, which is a completely different customer base. So this is very office-y. Very, we knew the average spend would be different. We didn't know if we'd hit the right turnover, but the rent was good. It was a great site across from the university. And in America, you open an organic supermarket anywhere near a university, it's a home run. Out of the park. So... I thought, okay, scary, but a risk I'm willing to take. And it didn't open well because that's when GM was coming in again and everyone went organic across London. So West Brom Grove sales fell, Torrington Place opened badly. And Brian said, let's put food to go in, which scared the poop out of me because retail is one thing, food, restauranting, you know, that's completely different. But what it did prove, which is really interesting today, is that Planet works in very many completely different locations, <laughs> including in the city, which was a real, you know, another gamble. So it works. Which is, uh, you know, the fund foundation for any growing business. And speaking about it working, um, can you take us through to um, your, your exit then? So you ran the company for 10 years, you say? We ran it together for 10 years. And then when I was 19, which I have referred to as being quite pivotal, the other revelation I had. Well, I had two. One was that I am passionate and persuasive and I have the power to lead and persuade. I knew that when I was 19, but I didn't have a cause. The only thing I could think of was the women's movement, but we actually thought it was done then. We thought, okay, that's been done. <laughs> yeah, can you believe it? Here we are again today. And the other thing I realized was that I could see that having children would be so much work just to take responsibility for the life of someone else in all the areas of well-being you know because it's not just feeding and clothing them it's emotional spiritual physical psychological all those areas of well-being and I thought oh my god I'll have a nervous breakdown I'm never ever having children I know myself really well I'm not having children so when Brian and I got married I said I will never have children so if you need to have children marry someone else and he said nope We'll get married. Well, then I turned 36, and it was like someone reached in and turned a switch inside me. And I was dreaming about not only being pregnant, but about breastfeeding babies. Like, I'd done it a million times. So I went to him and said, I want to be pregnant. <laughs> and he said, I knew you change your mind. Was he like, we're at work? Yeah. No. He <laughs> said, okay, thank goodness I'm here because I can hold the fort <laughs> and you can have a baby. So I had three. And... 
with each child, you know, with the first one, with Jess, I'd take her in to the business. I'd be breastfeeding at board meetings, freaking all the, sh- the male shareholders out. And but if you can do that anywhere, it's planet yeah, organic. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, this is my company. I'm an entrepreneur. She's coming with me. I took her up to, I was on the Council of the Soil Association for a long, long time. She'd come up on the train with me, with my girlfriend, Julia. And so it was easy. Then you have a second one. And I had, then, so then I had a three-year-old and an infant. And suddenly that's just not possible. So I stepped away from the business again a little bit. And then I had my third and it was like, oh. Jeez, I was I was so stressed, <laughs> even though I was, you know, meditating, eating really well, you know, really aware. I thought, oh, my God, this is just impossible. And I hit that decision, which I didn't really see coming, which makes me feel a bit stupid. But I couldn't do both. I couldn't run the business with Brian and be the mother that I felt I should be with my children. So it was decision time. So I decided to raise my kids. And other women don't, either can't or don't want to or don't. I have no judgment about that. I think, you know, it's life is so complicated. Each to their own. And you have to, yeah, exactly. You have to follow your heart. But for me, it was, all right, I'm going to do this. And Brian said, I'd love to get back into property. I think it's time to move on from retail. So with the shareholders, we hired a CEO to run Planet. And I didn't leave Planet. I'm still a shareholder, director, employee. But we stepped away to a very large degree. He, Brian left and I stepped out. And I said, well, let's take a year off because I'm so stressed and exhausted from kids and stuff going on at Planet. And then I said, let's take it in Italy, where we had this little tiny farmhouse in Tuscany. So we went to Italy for a year, which turned into three because it was paradise. And we did all the things that we'd been talking about with in terms of growing food. And we had an organic, we still have an olive grove and... I developed a new way of baking. I wrote one of my cookbooks out there, Me, You, and the Kids Too, which started to incorporate this baking. And it's about feeding babies and weaning babies and feeding the parents. And so that was great. And it was just a beautiful chapter, really lovely chapter. And for the children who were in a very small Italian school, only speaking Italian. Okay. Take me through, it's 2013, you've moved back to England, you've decided to move to Sussex, you're, I guess, restarting your life at this point. Tell us about Beluga Beam, what are, what, what's your next endeavour? Yeah, so it was it was starting life over at 50, and we got back to England, and I thought, what do I do? What do I do? And at 50, I thought, only things that are really easy that bring me total joy because I don't have to do the hard working. You know, Planet has been fantastic and what a journey, but ups and downs and, you know, not that there aren't ups and downs with every business, but I feel I have more choice now as an older, wiser woman. (laughs) So I thought, what am I going to do? I had no idea. So I thought I'll just do stuff I like. And that turned into some of the moms at school saying, wow, you bake all your bread, you bake all your baked goods, and they're healthy. They're contributing to your children's well-being, not detracting from it. Could you teach us how to bake? So doing baking out of my kitchen. I did a talk at the Guardian Masterclasses on launching into the food and drinks business, and I loved it. I've always enjoyed public speaking, but at 50, I thought, this is fun. This is, you know, funny and hilarious, and I had a ball. And so that took off, the baking took off, and I was approached to write another book, which I didn't want to do because 
they were so much work. But it was a life's work. I just thought this book has to be out there. So I wrote my next book, which came out last summer, which is um, What to Eat and How to Eat It. And I kind of poodled around with those things. And the, the important thing for me at this point in my life is that being a mom is really important. Being out in the world is really important. And the balance is critical for me so that I'm fulfilled. I don't go into resentment because I'm washing the dishes for the millionth time or whatever, that I have that expression in the world where I'm contributing and making a difference that balances those mundane tasks out that we all have to do. So that balance is critical. And all the things I was doing, I can fit around my kids. I'm there in the morning cooking breakfast. I take them to school. I can come into London if I need to or work from home. I'm picking them up from school. I'm making dinner at night. And it's like that spade in the sand that they know I'm there for them because my youngest is 10. And then a couple of years ago, I thought, I want to take it to the next level. I went from doing these little bits and pieces and thinking about the journey with planets started very much with well-being in terms of food, where something that was very key for me was when my eldest started school, I remember one of the moms said, we were talking about, they were in this very good state school on the Edgware Road. And she was saying, you know, oh, you know, school is the most important thing for children. And I thought, well, not really, because no matter, you can be incredibly talented or committed or dedicated, but if you don't have your health, you're not going anywhere. So I saw health as the foundation. And from that, if you were well and had vitality, you can go out and live your dreams and do everything you want to do with this one amazing life you have. So that was always the most important thing for me. But as I got older and had children and grew through that, I started looking at these seven areas of well-being that are really important. And thinking they all need nurturing. And again, these aren't things, going back to wanting to live better and differently, they aren't things that you learn at school. And that's including personal development, how to cook, how to meditate, how to have this balance, you know, exercise, yeah, you learn, but you need to carry on with all of that. So looking at these seven areas of well-being, that if you want to live this one life absolutely consciously and brilliantly and completely and 100%, you need to cover off these other areas. And that's where the idea of beluga bean came from. So coming on to the last section now, Renee, sadly, what would you say are your greatest lessons and greatest failures? I think if, I, if someone said to me, just tell me one thing, if you don't tell me 10 things because I don't want 10 things, tell me one thing, I would say trust yourself, trust your gut, and you will find that you've done the right thing. Because there are so many voices, and it's good to listen to other people, trusted friends and family and advisors. But at the end of the day, you've got to go deep inside and see what you want and go with your heart. So even taking a moment out to consider these things. Yes, take the time. Because life moves so fast now, and it's 24-7, and everyone's in a rush. And I certainly am working with some women who are stressed because of that. And I often say, what's the rush? It's never about the end or the goal. It's the journey because all you have is today. And it sounds kind of, I don't know, maybe a little corny to say that, but the journey is always up and down and it's learning and changing and growing. But it's not, oh, when I get here, it will be better or then I'll feel good. Or No, because then the goalposts move and you move on. It's taking time to breathe and have fun along the, the way. And what is, what's been your biggest failure? And throughout that, do you think that you personally got a great lesson that you can share? Yes, I don't think there are failures anymore. I think I used to when I was younger. But now I believe that everything that happens, whether people would dub it success or failure, it's all learning. You know, you have a success, 
you learn from it. You have a failure, you'll learn from it. I think it's probably only a failure if you don't learn from it. <laughs> I think that's very sound advice. Okay, last question. Are there any plans you have coming up like in the future? You know, you've, you've got this 10-year plan with Beluga Bean. Are there any other visions you have for the rest of your life? You know, things that you want to attach yourself to, projects, things you want to get involved in? It's an interesting question. The way I think about that is you can live your life and kind of bumble along and let things happen and be at the effect of things. And that's fine. And I know people who've found success that way and happiness and also had success in business that way. But I believe in creating the vision and crafting your life the way you want it to be. Not that it always works out that way, but to be thoughtful and have intention. So I look at my life going forward as I'm getting older and I think, ooh, what do I want? What do I want to experience? How do I want to live? What do I want my life to look like? Because it's a conscious process. And that is very exciting. And I feel very empowered. That's everything with how I spend time with my children to how I'm going to redesign my garden (laughs) to how my husband and I have fun every week. You know, what do we do that's fun? And just being not drifting along or rushing along as people do, rushing headlong, but being very thoughtful about how we spend our time and how we live our lives. That is a lovely way to end. So thank you very much, Renee. It's been a pleasure interviewing you. Hope you had fun. Thank you. It was great fun. Lovely to be with you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. I like the people behind the image, you know. I create the iconic images, hopefully, but the people are what really interest me. I have a sixth sense when I take photographs now and and when I direct of how someone's feeling. And photography is a weird thing. It's like every day you're capturing a moment and that moment you'll want to last forever. Pressing click isn't enough. It's not what photography is. That was the world's greatest portrait photographer and indeed one of the most famous photographers in the world, Rankin. He's shot the most famous people in the world from the Queen to the Rolling Stones. But he's most proud and well-known for his work shooting regular people and making them feel special. Which would explain, I guess, why he took us into his studio after to show us around and indeed include your host and producer to his list of regular people. And yes, we did feel special. He's famous for speaking his mind and not holding back. So hold on to your hats because this one is a gem. Tune in or you'll miss out. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media. And if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.